You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. JJ French is an American guitarist, manager, record producer, and founding member of the heavy metal band Twisted Sister. He's a columnist, author, and motivational speaker who oversees licensing and intellectual property rights for the Twisted Sister brand. His new book, Twisted Business, is part memoir and part business book. It follows French's adventures, adventure-filled life from growing up in New York City in the 60s to working as a drug dealer and struggling as an addict before quitting cold turkey, and finally to creating and cultivating Twisted Sister and turning it into one of the most successful bands in the world. Welcome to the program, J.J. French. Thank you for having me. JJ, I always like to say that this show is about kind of uncorking the stories behind the stories. And, and I'm curious, where does your story begin? Where does the, the story of JJ French begin? Uh, well, I mean, I was born in 1952, which is an important year because uh, that was the baby boomer, the heart of the baby boomer years. And, and I was a baby boomer baby, which means I was 14 when Sergeant Pepper came out and I was, you know, to the age of 20, lived the epicenter of the Beatles uh, um, effect in the music business, which is between the ages of 12. I always say the music you listen to be between the ages of 12 and 20 is the music that sticks with you for the rest of your life. It just so happens the Beatles fit into my 12 and 20 paradigm. So that's perfect. Uh, and then on top of that, you know, the hippie thing was all encompassing. And, and so to live in New York City at that period of time with, uh, everything that was associated with it, which was the sex, drugs, rock and roll politics was really big. Everybody, you know, everyone in those days agreed that the war sucked and everybody hated the president. I mean, it was like universal. There was no splitting up of anything. It was just, you had 400,000 people in Woodstock. They all hated the same thing and they loved the same thing and it's a different time. Um, so it was a great time to be a teenager. It was a great time to, um, be exposed to all the rock music I was exposed to because it was the absolute epicenter of what is considered the, you know, the height of the history of rock. So, you know, having the ability to go see these bands every weekend for a dollar, two dollars, three dollars, and just feed your, feed yourself with it if that's your addiction, this rock into your addiction. I mean, Bill Graham, who was the promoter who owned the Fillmore, I met him many years later and I said, thank you for giving me my college degree because living at the Fillmore was able to fuel my rock and roll dreams. Then there's politics involved and there's anti-war and it's pro-civil rights. And my parents are very politically connected and my mother was. And so I got dragged into that whole thing. So it was, I lived it to the fullest. And then I got in the drug scene, same thing, lived that to the fullest and was dealing and wound up going to Europe and becoming a house dealer at the Paradiso in 1971 in the Milky Way in Amsterdam. That was the drug culture capital of the world at that time. So that was being at the right place at the right time, kind of like a zelegy kind of life. That's kind of been my view of how I perceive things, being at the right place at the right time, seeing crazy things and living uh, and being able to tell about it, talk about it. I almost felt like uh, 
going back in my life, I always felt that I was a reporter, like John Segal was put here to let you know what it was like, and he witnessed it and came through it. And I probably shouldn't have because of various drug ODs and wrong place, wrong time, murders that could have happened. You know, I was almost killed probably half a dozen times or death by misadventure doing something stupid and just surviving it. So it's really kind of a crazy life and a cautionary tale. And then that doesn't even include Twisted Sister. <laughs> right. Yet, right. We're not even there yet, you know. So I've already lived 10 lifetimes. You know, so, you know, like I said to my mom when I was 20, well, the good news is I'm not, I don't do drugs anymore. But the bad news may be that I've decided to become a transvestite rock musician, <laughs> I, I, you know, but straight, which was weird. Uh, not that it was weird for me. I had already burned myself out on drugs. I, when I stopped, I stopped. There was no point going back. I, I did enough for 10 people and uh, saw crazy stuff and don't need to do that again. Never thought about it again. Seriously, never known. People say to me, how'd you avoid it? It's easy. You just <laughs> it's not part of what you who you are what what, uh, yeah. what was the turning point that like what what made you decide to quit cold turkey well two things one is that um, my best friend and girlfriend were stone cold junkies and and as the heroin i know deed and 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 as the heroin thing became really big and wiped out the whole hippie love culture that started it all out i hate to say that it leads to heroin it did in our case i told my mother in 67 when i started smoking pot we're hippies we're flower children you know and five years later phew, you know, the whole scene became heroin infested and people were getting murdered or ODing and dying. And my best friend and my girlfriend were just part of that whole culture. And, and I woke up one morning and I, and I said, you know, John, you've had five crazy years of drug, of, of, of nonstop drug use and nonstop dealing and you are still okay. And you, and you're not, don't have a police record. And maybe it's time to get on the exit ramp get on the yeah. off ramp of that before it kills you. Um, and so that was my, my preservational uh, survival streak in me. I got, I took the off ramp just before uh, something really bad could have, you know, could have happened. And that's, that's really what it was. I, I can't, th there was nothing connected to it having to do with a religious experience. It was nothing about it having to do with going to a 12 step program. This was a practical guy getting up and going, man, you saw some crazy shit. You did some crazy shit. It's time to leave it. You, you can't get any crazier. You can't do any more drugs. You can't see any more insane hallucinations. You can't OD more. You know, the, the next step is just death. And so get out of it before you're arrested and get out of it before you OD. And I was, and I did, I just picked a day, which was April Sunday, 19th, April, um, it was Easter Sunday, 1972. Uh, whatever drugs I had left, I took them. And I, I said to myself, if I wake up tomorrow morning, that'll be the end of it. And I woke up the next morning and that was the end of it. And never, never looked back. And, but, but like, but I was never a drinker. Alcohol was never part of that scene. And so when Twisted started six months later as a transvestite rock band, those guys were all drinkers. Yeah. And I never, and I never drank. I never liked the taste of alcohol. I, I've had five beers in my life. I just think it's terrible tasting. So I never, I, I, I don't like beer. And then, of course, the band is playing in bars, so you get all the alcohol in the world in the bars. So the singer, who was a world-class alcoholic, um, tried to indoctrinate me into the world of alcohol. I mean, he didn't force anything down my throat. He, this wasn't like a frat party. He just said, yeah. you know, he said, wow, this is scotch. You know, like we were in a bar 
and the bartender was good friends and he says set them up and he they a bunch of shot glasses and they put all different kinds of stuff you know shivis and jack daniels and all that and i tasted each one and i went oh this tastes like shit oh this tastes like shit like went down like 20 glasses i said man this is like the worst tasted garbage how do you drink that what i guess you'd want to get drunk that's why you drink it because you can't be telling me that it tastes any good so therefore i never liked it now that would have been fun in games had it not led to the fact that the, that the the drinking got in the way of the band's success heavily. And that version of the Twisted Sister fell apart within two years. And we yeah. climbed a mountain and then we fell apart. The book tells the story of this constant, like climbing up and falling apart, climbing up and falling apart. And, and I became, so it was enough. It wasn't just enough that I didn't like drugs anymore. And I wasn't going to proselytize about it, which is you want to do them, knock yourself out. Just don't, I don't need my life complicated by your addictions and your problems. Well, you can always cut your friends out, but you got business partners who are fucked up. And so then you have to decide, you know, is that the way you want to run your business? And um, I didn't join the band to be a businessman. I joined the band as a guitar player. I didn't think about business. I just thought about playing guitar, even though I have the innate ability to function in a business situation. It wasn't part of the plan. But as I observed the playing field of a minefield of alcohol and drug disasters, I came to the conclusion that uh, drugs and alcohol have no place in anything, including rock and roll, which of course is the antithesis of everything. Yeah, of course. So we live in rock and roll. I just came to a business decision. I said, yo, I don't care if it works for Motley Crue. I don't care if it works for the Rolling Stones, whatever it works for them doesn't work for me. I, I can't handle it. This, I won't subject myself to the stupidity of people who do. So putting together a straight band becomes a bit of a challenge because why do guys want to join bands? Because it's girls, it's drugs, it's all that other shit. And, uh, you know, if you look at Gene and Paul from Kiss, you know, the two of them had the same theory, but then Peter and Ace didn't. Yeah. And eventually Peter and Ace suffered the results of probably the fact that they didn't i mean you know i more than likely they that's what happened to them um and so you know one by one we started replacing guys with guys who weren't into drugs and alcohol and it just becomes difficult because you know what happens is you interview let's say you're auditioning a drummer and and he's a good drummer and you said by the way you know we really don't really like you know, drinking and drugs. I mean, you want to have a beer on your off time, whatever. I'm not going to tell you this is a Jehovah Witness organization, but you, but in the context of our, our working schedule, which is brutal, five, six days a week rehearsing, playing, um, it, it's a brutal schedule. You can't keep up. So you get one or two responses. One response, which is the honest response is, are you freaking kidding me? I, I, I thought that that is part of the package. And no, I can't do that. And you go, thank you very much for being honest. Goodbye. Or, oh, of course, man, I don't do that. And of course they do. And they get fired because yeah. they fuck up. So that's what happens. So the book goes into great detail about all of the fits and starts and the lessons learned because of that. You know, compounding all the other crap that comes into the business. You know, there's so many different issues so many problems and challenges and roadblocks that get thrown at you everywhere else. You have to deal with it internally as a company. It's even more problematic. And, and, and the rock and roll shtick that goes with it is more problematic. So you either have to be very strong 
you know, I mean, like to the point where you can just wear blinders and, and you're not allowing it in. And in my case, Dee's case, Mark Mendoza's case, we wear blinders, you know, like doesn't exist. Well, when, when you don't allow partying to come in, you don't party with other bands either because you have really nothing to, yeah. to do. I was curious if, if, if that like um, ever got in the way of like relationships with either, you know, bands, you know, you were featuring or opening for or, or bands that were opening for you. I mean, did that lead to any, any tension or? No, no tension, just, just no interest. Yeah. You know, no tension at all. Nobody cared. I mean, but they didn't invite you to parties or you wouldn't go to them anyway. Cause why everyone's getting wasted. So we were pretty antisocial as a band. I can't say that was maybe a great career choice because you're not hanging out with everybody getting wasted. But on the other hand, you're not hanging out with everybody getting wasted. So it, it's, we, the whole scene was defined by parties, partying, all those big tours and all the, you know, let's get together, man. It's on a tour bus and smoking. You know, but if you're not into that, then it's a boring, then that's boring. And you don't want to sit there and act like, be like someone's parents. You know, it's not like you're not invited. But then you go, well, I, if you're trying to have a conversation with somebody and they're just stoned and it's like, hey, I love you, man, or one of those others, you know, like the evocations of people who are high and all the bullshit that goes with it or the cocaine fantasies that go with cocaine, you know, it's like, man, I don't, and plus we were older. So by the time we had our hit records, we were already in our 30s. Everybody else was in their early 20s, you know. So if those bands are in their early 20s, hell, I can't tell you at the age of 22, if we had a hit record, it could have been different. But by the time we got to be 32, I mean, for me, Stay Hungry happened in 84, so I was 32. Um, the last thing I really wanted was anybody around me. I just was like, man, give me the paycheck and let me go home. I, I don't really have an, any interest whatsoever to do anything other than my job which is go on stage, play, go to the studio, do it, make a video, do it, and go home. Uh, the rest of it is, is irrelevant to me. And so we had different managers during those periods of time because managing in the hailstorm of that insanity becomes more of a problem. But the managers that we did bring in to, to work with me and eventually take over, they had their problems too. So if you look at the the band's going to celebrate its 49th anniversary of its beginnings in this December. Out of that 49 years, we played, we were active for about um, 35 of those years because we took a 12-year break. Out of the 35 years, I managed the band 30 of the 35 years. Uh, and when I managed the band, things tended to be smooth. And then we had these other guys, things tended to be, you know, more turbulent. Did that create like a, any power struggles inside the band with the other guys or? Yeah, well, I mean, D is a lead singer. Lead singers have their own cultural manifestations. You know, he's a brilliant performer, brilliant writer, best front man I think I've ever seen and doesn't get the credit for it. But I don't, I've stood shoulder to shoulder with him thousands of times. And I've seen everybody there is to see and there's nobody that comes close to his vocal ability or to his uh, entertainment factor. Yeah, not not close. I mean, you know, like Jagger is a great frontman, but he's not a great he's a great performer. He's not a great frontman. Like he doesn't really talk to he doesn't have, doesn't really you know he'll talk he'll say a couple of phrases you know and he's not really an entertainer. Great frontman, but not a great entertainer. Uh, you know, people always say, well, Jagger, well he's very energetic. He runs around. And he does his job and he sings great. And 
by the way, he's probably the, the, the only good thing about the Rolling Stones is his voice is still good and he runs yeah. around. But he's not a great front man. And Ozzy's certainly not a great front man. David Lee Roth was entertaining, you know, uh, but not a great singer. Dee's way better than him. I, you know, Dio was a phenomenal singer. Oh, yeah. Not particularly the most engaging front man, but my God, what a monster singer brian johnson doesn't have to do very much you know you've got like a catalog like that you can just sit there and play the hits all night long brian happens to be one of the nicest people on the planet and so is ronnie dio by the way Phenomenal. yeah i've heard that about both of those guys yeah, yeah. Well, i mean wonderful guys and great and and fronting great bands and great catalog they don't have to do much you know they don't really have to do much and ozzy kind of squeaks by he croaks through his life he's fortunate that he can do it but certainly not a particularly good front man um uh but these the best you know but these but but with that is ego and ego has created more problems and like i discussed in the book um you know uh people say to me well you know you did this meaning me and you know but these pictures out there you know that was a creative choice that was made because it was packaging like the way angus is always in the front of an acdc cover I and mean, if you look at that you know there's a band but it's angus's yeah you know or fleetwood mac's biggest cover was mick fleetwood and stevie nicks where was the rest of the band how did john mcvee feel about the fact <laughs> that it's called fleetwood mac for mcvee right and he's not on the cover of the record how do you think he feels well i don't know if his bank account's in much danger of feeling terrible so you know uh there's a quote from Ahmed Erdogan in the book which is success is easier if you don't mind who gets the credit but you have to have a certain mindset you know yeah. you, have to, you have to be really circumspect you have to have a really large playing field and a large view at a big picture because otherwise you'll be stuck in your basement as a basement Mozart and be broken <laughs> you know like saying I woulda coulda shoulda right and meanwhile I got like 37 golden platinum records on my wall you know i'll live with it yeah you know i, I was wondering the, the business decision to to kind of go straight as a band um it's funny go straight as a band of transvestites but uh is is, is part of that like putting the fans first and making sure that the fans are getting 110 percent of all you have to offer a hundred percent you live for that experience the live experience is what fueled us for years and our dedication to being great every night fueled us for years and uh, so 100% of that was a, a, was a uh, an understanding that they're paying hard-earned money to see a great show and you want to put on a great show. So uh, having to apologize for sucking is not the greatest way to run a, a business. Yeah. So yeah, it was 100% dedication to a, a level of professionalism that most people will never attain because they don't want to sacrifice they won't do the sacrifices that they need. I talk about this in the book um, because I discuss the boredom of excellence. And the boredom of excellence is doing things over and over and over and over and over again and improving them every single time and improving them in, in small increments. You know, that, that whole cliche about insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. And I think that's bullshit. I said, when it comes to performers, athletes, Doing something over and over and over again, expecting different results does happen, but it's sometimes it's just tiny. You know, maybe tonight we were great except for this one little thing. And we're going to make sure tomorrow we don't do that. We're going to maybe f screw up somewhere else, but not, not there. So they come in tiny amounts, but the best people in the world 
do this over and over again. And that's the boredom of excellence because, you know, you're not going to wake up at four o'clock in the morning and ski for eight hours, but the gold medal skier will do that, but you won't do that. You know, and the, and the first chair at the Philharmonic violin player is playing eight hours a day. You're not going to do that, but that person's going to do that. And, and that's how I look at it. You know, if you're willing to do that, that will set you apart from all the people who don't. And 99.99% of the people don't do that because they want to do something else. You know, that, that's a very tedious, driven uh, mental state. You know, D is an extremely driven individual. I'm a driven individual. Mark Mendoza is a driven individual. Eddie Ojeda, you know, the, then, then of course you had to create an atmosphere that you could be stable enough to withstand this kind of repetition which means that you needed to create an economic base that everybody could function in. That's the stability. So the twisted method of reinvention, which I talk about in the book, which is taking the words twisted, T-W-I-S-T-E-D, and using each letter as a, as a talking point. Um, there's a reason why each letter matters. You know, stability in any business is important. You know, if, if you look at a business like a, like a jet flying through the air, you know, and most of the time it's smooth. And then they go, please put on your seatbelt we got a little turbulence, you know, that may be a challenge. And then there's more turbulence and that may be you know, a crisis. You don't want catastrophe to happen. So how good are you at, at neutralizing those challenges and the crises before it hits catastrophes? Most people do not perceive a band approaching that in a business way. They yeah. just see the music. Hey man, this party is rock and roll. You know, oh yeah, right. Well, one guy OD'd and one guy died and we placed him and then the album bombed and we went broke and we come back together again. And then a couple went to rehab and it's these broad stories. And okay, and that's true. But you know, the nuance of all those stories is what I'm telling you. The the weeds, getting into the weeds of all of it is what I did in the book. And most people never did that before. So what the book basically says is here's a company. Twisted Sister. Here's a problem. Here's how JJ looked at the problem. Here's what his solution to the problem was. And here was the end result of that solution. And it takes you through real world issues, not hypotheticals like you learn in school, like yeah. real world shit, because I'm a high school dropout. So everything I learned, I learned on the street. And there were very tough lessons, like yeah. really, really, really tough lessons. And, and many don't survive it. But I could tell you that if I was high or if I had alcohol and drug problems, um, that only adds to the problem of solving a problem. Because now you've got the problem and then you've got the problem on top of the problem. I just take away the problem on top of the problem, which is drugs and alcohol. Now I'm just dealing with the problem. Sounds easy, but it's yeah. not. Yeah, I don't think most people think, or fans anyway, think of bands as brands or as small businesses. And, and, you know, my background, I'm a marketing guy, ran my own marketing business. And now I teach um, marketing at a university here in Connecticut. Um, but, you know, I'm just wondering, like, did you like think about the, the, the band as a brand? And did you, it sounds like you thought about it as a small business and managed it as a business versus like, you know, a, a party central or something like that. Um, eventually. Yeah. You know, Keith Richards, tells this joke or story it's the difference between mick and keith and he says well mick wakes up every morning and says you know what am i doing today 10 days from now what am i doing 10 weeks from now what am i doing in 10 months from now what am i doing in 10 years from now and keith gets up every morning and says i woke up this morning 
So uh, I definitely became aware of my ability to see things 10 months, 10 years down the line. And that also came with a diary that I started keeping um, at a very, very uh, important part of my life, which I described in the book. I was 22 years old. And when the band first broke up, the original version of the band in, in 74, the singer had pulled a gun out on a drummer on the drummer in a bar fight and didn't kill him, thankfully, didn't, didn't pull the trigger. It just led to a fist fight, which led to the breakup of the band. That coupled with my girlfriend, who I was desperately in love with, leaving me and my mother dying all in the same couple of weeks, um, led me to a crushing depression, which led me to almost, con I was considered suicide. I didn't kill myself, obviously. And there's all lessons about that, which I talk about in the book. I take depression very, very, very seriously. And I tell people, if you get that depressed where you can't see the forest or the trees and, and waking up every day is a nightmare, you have to seek professional help and you, you have to maybe get medication or whatever the, the doctor tells you to do, but you can't run away from it. I did not do that. Um, I was lucky in that I endured eight months of unbelievably unrelenting physical pain and then woke up one morning and the pain was gone. And I thought, well, wow, that's a mistake. It's going to come back tomorrow. And it didn't come back. But the point is I started keeping a diary of my mental state um, at the very beginning of this whole journey um, on the, on the night of my mother's funeral service. And um, that diary lasted 15 years. And with the beauty of that diary is that I kept logs of my mental state and the band's shows and blah, 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 blah. And what you learn from that as time goes on is you go back to what you wrote when things were through a tough patch and you got through it and you go, oh, I got through that. At the time, I couldn't see how I was going to get through that. At the time, it was beyond bleak. And I did. And there have been enough of those there have been enough of those episodes of my life where I've gotten through things that I thought I could never get through that I'm pretty confident that I'll figure out ways how to get through them at, at this point. But it's almost impossible to see it when it's happening. And, you know, then, of course, you can laugh about it years later if you survive it. But at the time, it's horrible. So putting those kinds of things in perspective at the time they're happening is a tough thing to do. That's what a good manager can do. Um, and then projecting where you think things are going is another issue, you know, and so I've, I've shown enough of an ability to kind of see that too, you know, but again, that, that's a trait that's, that is an innate trait in me. And it's an element of why the band made it. You know, the band also is a combination of great talent. So you've got D writes the songs, Eddie who plays this amazing guitar and Mark Mendoza great producer, great bass player, AJ Pirro, who passed away, great drummer. So all of that comes into play. It's a collaborative affair. Companies are collaborative affairs. And how a company is structured um, will depend on the ability for your partners or the people who work for you to want to dedicate themselves to this vision that exists. So D uh, was an incredibly creative guy, especially in the early stages, you know, up until up to the record deals, he was the visionary for that. But then you had to implement that with practicality, you know, like who puts together the time frames to be able to make these things happen and all the stuff that goes with it. You know, it's a company. I mean, look, it's rock and roll, so it's sexy. It's rock and roll, so the stories are, people want to read about it. You're, you know the band, that makes you compelled to want to know the story. But at the end of the day, it's a business story that is applicable to, you know, 
to anything, to any business at all, to a shoe company, you know, to a, to, you know, to, um, you know, to a car company, to any company. They're just, that's how companies survive. Yeah. And that's really why I, I love the book so much, especially my, my co-author, Steve Farber, who's written bestsellers and, 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 and brought me into the world of corporate speaking engagements, because all of a sudden I'm not being hired by music groups, which I thought in the beginning would, no, no, I'm being hired by financial institutions, tra travel agencies, um, um, accounting companies, uh, um, uh, insurance companies. I mean, because I'm just, I'm, I'm telling an entertaining story about the music business, but what I'm telling them is absolutely applicable to sure. their businesses. Yeah. I mean, I, I was introduced to the band, like many people in my generation in, in 84 would stay hungry, you know, uh, it, what role did MTV play in sort of the meteoric rise? Um, and maybe meteoric is the wrong term. No, you, it's you, the right word. Okay. It was both the meteoric rise and the fall. Yeah. I mean, MTV was the, was the video version of, of the AM radio hit parade back in the 50s and 60s. You know, back in those days, there was only one number one. Everybody in the world knew it because there was only one outlet and that was pop radio. And then MTV became the visual version of pop radio. So if you were super big on MTV, everybody knew you. Today, being number one on a chart is like trying to tell me who's the number one boxer in the world. There's 10 belts. Right. You can't keep track of the belts, right? You can't keep track of number ones either because you're number one country, you're number one hip hop, you're number one urban, you're number one pop, you're number one dance, you're number one EDM. You're, what are you number one at? You know, there's no universal number one anymore. Um, everything is so splintered, but, you know, having said that MTV was a huge, uh, we used MTV and MTV used us. And unfortunately, you know, the problem with MTV is that MTV ushered in the, the age of, of goofy rock. Oh, I call it, you know, like the super technicolor dopey rock acts, you know, like, and the videos that go with it, that all funny. But whether it's Walk Like an Egyptian or whether it's Devo with the flower pots on their head or other such gimmicky stuff. I mean, it's gimmicky. It's, it's, it's flavor of the month. It's hot. But at the end of the day, it's, it's frivolous and foamy and worthless. And, and, uh, and, and, and there's just a whole bunch of goofy rock out there. You know, Van Halen was, was David Lee Roth could have taken him into the goofy rock world. But, but Eddie was so good at anchoring them that it, it and then eventually David left and they become more of a serious you know band yeah um Ang, you know Angus from ACDC could be goofy rock but but their songs are so great they save themselves from the goofy rock moniker moniker but we got slammed with it you know because we ran with it and then we made some mistakes which I go into in the book about yeah. it. but we had redemption at the end yeah you know we came back after after 12 years of being in the forest, roaming around, doing nothing, thinking there was no future. And, did... and, and then we came back. And then when we came back, it didn't matter about MTV. And it didn't matter about the charts. The band's reputation that was forged in the, in the fires of the bar scene, which taught us how to be a great band, was so strong that all of a sudden we come back and we're headlining the biggest festivals in the world. And so for 14 years, we headlined 125 of the world's biggest shows. Now, how important is that? I'll put that in perspective. When you're playing to 100,000 people and you're closing a festival, 
you can't suck. And there's only a handful of artists that are trusted with 100,000 people on this planet. This is a handful. You have to really know what you're doing to play 100,000 people. Because not only do you have to be great, and make sure you put on a good show, but the festival relies on the fact that people walk out and go, man, that was a great festival. You know, I was worth my 200 euros, 300 euros. Well, there's only like 10 or 15 artists that can be trusted with 100,000 people. And we are one of those artists. And we are trusted with that amount of people because we know how to do it. And it's an art form. So, so in, in terms of sort of the, the, the fall after, after the MTV, you know, peak, um, how did you guys, and in, there, there was a breakthrough, but how did you guys re, reinvent yourselves? Like how, you know, was, was that a strategic process or what, what was that no, all about? It wasn't a strategic process. It was done. I, you know, I became a stereo salesman out of the business completely. D. Uh, you know, I mean, D wrote a song that became a hit for Celine Dion, which was great for him, but he lost everything. D and I filed for bankruptcy and lost everything. Um, uh, and Mark went off and did his thing and Eddie went off and did his thing. No, no, there was no, there was, a, I, I detail in the book, D and I first had to repair our relationship because we had a horrible relationship. So we stopped playing in 88 and in 96, D and I had a meeting in my apartment and, and um, for the sole purpose of just, there, you know, we were done. So there was no bringing the band back together. It just so happened that I did an audit and found that one of our albums had just gone triple platinum and had to mail everybody a triple platinum plaque. And the one I sent to D came back to me and I didn't understand why. And through a series of conversations, we wound up on the phone together. And, and I said to him, you know, we hadn't spoken since 88. And I said, why don't you come in and we'll talk. So he comes to my house and sits in my kitchen for three or four hours. And we just let it out, everything we ever thought about each other, both sides. And at the end of it, um, D apologized for things he said. I apologized for things he interpreted that I did. And then we walked away. And I went, you know what? Cool, because I will wake up tomorrow not hating you for the first time in, you know, 10 years. Yeah. And that was all, that was it. There was no intention. There was not, there was no other intent. I never thought the band would get back together. The band got back together because of 9-11, because um, we are all New Yorkers, all born in New York City, all five of us. And, um, and we all lost people in 9-11, as did many New Yorkers, you know, the six degrees of separation. I mean, my daughter's third grade teacher's husband died in it. Eddie Ojeda had a sister-in-law and a nephew in the buildings. They both got out. I mean, there's, these, these stories are just horrible. And um, we reunited to do a benefit to raise money for the Widows and Orphans Fund for the New York City Police Fire Department and emergency services workers. And that was it. It was just a benefit. We had fun rehearsing. It was fun. We did the show. Uh, and then all of a sudden the word got out that Twisted put on this amazing show, the Hammerstein Ballroom. And then we started getting offers. And and then, you know, then I looked at the guys and they looked at me and like, well, we can't go on the road. We don't have a band. There's no infrastructure anymore. You know, unless you have a bunch of shows, it costs so much to ramp up a business. Um, so it wasn't practical. So we had to wait a couple of years to figure out ways to make it practical. Then we thought we'd last two years, three years, and it went on for 14. As, as it was rolling on, options started coming up like the Twisted Christmas record. Now that record, 
you know, I knew that record would sell well if, it, if, if, if we made the right record. Why? Because people don't give downloads for Christmas. They give tangible products. So we told the record label, you know, you make CDs and vinyl. People will buy it. That's what they want to give for Christmas. And that was correct. That was a correct analysis. And the record was huge in U.S. and, and in Europe. And we got, on the, we got on multiple television shows. All of a sudden, Twisted Sisters back everywhere. And then the, the shows in Europe kept climbing. And it kept going and going. And I kept thinking, when's it going to end? When's it going to end? And it got bigger and bigger and bigger because 80s metal and that whole thing is gigantic and is today. You know, I, you could put us, Judas Priest, Whitesnake, Motley on a tour in Europe and you'd sell billion, you sell out soccer stadiums or South America because they, the kids, and they're 12 years, they're 15 years old or 20 years old, love this stuff. You know, anyway, um, we became aware of that. Uh, but then the licensing of the music became huge. And that was another thing too, you know, how much we're not going to take it. I want to rock became the two of the biggest licensed songs. And that allowed us to, that gave us some uh, options of not having to play because the generating of the money from the licensing is, was good. So, you know, but then again, holding on to the trademark that I tell the story about the trademark, being almost being taken away from me by a judge during my bankruptcy trial. And what I said to the judge is, a, is an important piece of this history because when I talk about wisdom, which is the W part of the book, that's where, that's where the vision, the long-term approach really kind of steps in. And there's a lot of those yeah. along the way too. And, and, you know, I, I always, you know, people always talk about this as well, man, you know, it's an amazing character you developed and i said i said no 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 i said um chaos does not develop character it exposes <laughs> character you know it, it, you have to have it in you and it will come out when you least expect it kind of like you know you hear these stories like a, a a car ran over a baby and a mother lifted up a 2000 pound card full of baby well because she wanted to save her kid you know and so she was able to do extraordinary things you do extraordinary things under extraordinary circumstances, you know, and understanding chaos um, in a business is important and understanding proactive and reactive chaos. I, you know, it gets into the weeds because people don't think that a musician thinks this way or that you approach this thing with this kind of practical knowledge, but, you know, everyone's confronted with chaos in their life and, and challenges and crises. And there's, and there's proactive and reactive, you know, reactive is how you react to it when you'd at least expect it. Proactive gives you a shot at it to, to prepare yourself for the oncoming storm and trying to be proactive in your chaos is way better than reactive. Cause you know how, like in football, the offense knows what the defense is. Offense knows a split second more than the defense does. And that's what happens in business too. You know, you know, businesses shake themselves up a lot. And they have to in order to survive. And that's proactive chaos. Like they know what they're doing and they're taking a risk, but you don't want to be the subject of reactive chaos where all of a sudden prices go out of control. You didn't see that coming or there's a truck accident that kills the driver. And, you know, you didn't see that coming. And listen, so much of this crap happened to Twisted Sister. I mean, our trucks, we had our trucks blown up and sabotaged. My drummer pulls, a, you know, my singer pulls a gun on a drummer, threatens to kill him. Uh, I get threatened by a, like a, like a, like by a, a recording studio guy who threatens to break my legs and you know we had to bring in people to you know make a copacetic arrangement and take care of that you know this is all i could never have when i was 20 this was not what i signed up for 
I thought it was just going to be like, yeah, rock and roll. I didn't realize I was going to be thrown into the midst of this freaking. And then the music business is a cesspool of crap anyway. And <laughs> the egos you deal with, forget the band egos. What are the egos of the record company presidents who wish they were you, but they're not, but they control you. So they make you feel like crap. And they're fucking nuts. They're nuts. I mean, you know, you so you deal with that psychotic shit, which is all the people around you who claim that they made you and they claim that you owe them and you know, and uh, it's a, I don't wish this business on anybody, but I think it's arrogant to say that because someone could have said that to me when I was 20. So you don't want to get in this business. It's too bad. It's really tough. Yeah. And, and then when there's a lot of money, it's a tough business. Yeah. And I'm sure there's a couple of crazy club owners out there that you could tell stories about. Man, there's, yeah, there certainly are, you know? Um, uh, yes. And I go into detail in the book about some of them. But we had a club owner who, 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 from what we understand, we never could prove it. But when our truck was blown up, was set on fire, I understand that this one rival club owner, because we refused to play in his room, um, told one of his sons to blow up our truck and did it at a venue with 2,000 people in the room. And our truck was set on fire. And that was a fun night. You know, <laughs> That was a really fun experience. Or my drummer, one of my drummers uh, somehow doing something to some girl that she didn't like. And she brought a whole bunch of guys back to the bar at five o'clock in the morning to attack the road crew and beat them with baseball bats and put my drummer in the hospital. Um, we weren't expecting that. I wasn't expecting to be threatened by this guy. I wasn't expecting all you know this stuff and that stuff to happen. I wasn't expecting to go through multiple band member changes because of drug and alcohol abuse, which happened on a fairly regular basis. Um, so it's how you respond to all this stuff that really makes the story compelling. Then people would say, well, what about the music? Oh, you mean there's music involved? Oh, I forgot. There's albums and songs. Yeah, we managed to fit that in in between all the, the ridiculousness. Right. Um, you know, I, I'm curious, the way the music industry has changed, you know, in the, in the 49 years that you've been kind of actively part of it, um, is it a business you would choose to get into now? You know, when I was 20 and didn't know better, the playing field is very different from what the playing field is today, but it's still a playing field. So if you apply the rules of the playing field philosophy, which is which I will, will tell you what that is, then it should be okay because it's it's an even playing field. In other words, somebody makes money, someone's successful. So why can't it be you? That's the question you have to ask yourself. No, it's a very different business. So when uh, a musician comes up to me, he's 20 years old and says, give him some advice. The first thing I want to say is, you're asking the guy who's almost 70 for advice. I didn't ask anybody for advice. I said, you're 20. You should be figuring this out. You shouldn't be asking me. But in my world, when I was 20, Nixon was president. Gasoline was 23 cents a gallon. You could rent a house for $300 a month. You could rent a truck for $25 a week. Drinking age was 18. The clubs were gigantic. You can make $150 a night, $900 a week as a band. Because gas was 23 cents a gallon and a, and a house was $300 a month and the phone bills were $20 a month and electric bills were $20 a month, you could live together. You could learn how to play in a band. You could put money away. All you have to do is start making three, four, five hundred $500 a night, five nights, six nights a week. That's $2,000 a week. That's $8,000 a month. All of a sudden, you got plenty of money. You have stability in the band. You can pay for your demos, the studios, and all that other stuff. So that's that's the cocoon that I lived under. So 
in those days, what did we do? We had a certain value out of the box because we could work right away. Nowadays, you know, bands walk up to me and they go, man, you know, you got to come and see my band. And I go, you know, well, how many shows you played? How long you've been together? And they go two years. And I go, how many shows you played? They say 50. Like, that's a big deal. Like, that's a big thing. 50 shows, right? Wow, two years. And I'd say, okay, well, when you get to 500, let me know. And they go, well, we'll never get to 500. And I said, well, there's a good chance I will never come to see your band because you're going to suck until your 500th show. I'm not going to waste my time. And they go, well, how many did you do? Well, let me tell you how this works numerically. You know, we work five shows in, from the very beginning, five shows a night, six nights a week. So that's 30 shows in a week, right? That's 120 a month. That's what, 12, that's 1,400 a year. So in the first three years, we're at what? We're at 28, 38, we're at 4,000 shows in three years. 4,000 performances, okay? That's how you get good. So that doesn't exist today. That simply doesn't exist today. So, but what we did was, first thing we did as a band was we said well we're making 150 a night but that band's making 300 a night why are they making 300 a night let's go see them okay their song choices were different their lighting was better blah, 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 blah. so we started copying a little bit you know like that's what you do you kind of like you know like i say to people before you the beatles you better be better than the band next door that's number one you got to kill your competition off here locally before you know you want to be apple that's great but you know be be grape first before you're apple i mean you just have to start so when I went to young bands, I'll just go, are there bands that you know that are more successful than you that you go see regularly, local? Yeah. I said, well, what are they doing? What do you mean? Well, what are they doing? Is the social media better? What, what are they doing that you're not doing? Copy what they do. I mean, that's what we all do in the beginning. You kind of copy something. You try to be better. Look, why are, you, why are you an entrepreneur? There's two reasons why you're an entrepreneur. One is that you've come up with something that no, the world has never seen before and you're willing to sacrifice everything you've ever owned to bring it to the world, or you see something that exists before, but you think you can do it better. That's the two things, that's it. That sums up entrepreneurship right there. You're either improving the existing model or you're coming up with something new. Well, Twisted Sister was, there's millions of bands before Twisted Sister. We wanted to improve an existing model. The dolls were an existing model. We thought they sucked. <laughs> they were awful. They, if they didn't look the way they did, they, they can't play their way out of a paper bag. Not to be confused with the Sex Pistols or the Ramones, who were actually really good bands with a focus. The Dolls were just a bad band. I don't, and I don't care, you Dolls fans can go screaming all you want. They sucked. <laughs> and they were, you know, we'd go see them all the time because they played at the Mercer Arts Center. I knew the guys before they put on women's clothing. They sucked then and they sucked afterwards. They were never any good. David Johansson said the band sucked. Well, I'm not going to argue with the lead singer of the band. That's his opinion. I saw them later on when they actually had musicians in the band, like Steve Conti. They were great, but not with that lineup. I'm sorry. They were too fucking wasted. They, they, and it just wasn't good. And not only was it not good, I didn't understand how you could be that bad. Because frankly, I had come after four years of greatness at the Fillmore. You know, four years of greatness, four years of Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Grateful Dead, Rod Stewart, Jeff Beck, The Who, Crosby, Stills, and Now. We have four years of greatness. Then it closes, and the dolls is, is what we have. After four years of evolution, we have the de-evolution of this shit. You got to be kidding me. You know, so why did I even bother practicing? I could just suck and play like that, you know, like anyway. So I, so we, we went to, you know, we're all like, oh, the dolls look amazing. They did. They look great. 
I, I thought they looked fabulous. That this could, and my quote, I, I and I was even, I even told that to a record company executive at the Mercer Art Center. I was walking out after one show, and a guy in a suit said, "So, can I ask you your opinion?" And it had to be a, a, a record company executive. He was wearing a suit, you know. He looked like he was in his mid thirties. And I went, I said, "Man, they're an amazing looking band, and if they ever learn how to play, they may be of some value." That was my quote. Yeah. So I'm not going to go back on it. That's what it was. It was garbage, pure and simple, but Twisted could be a better version of that. Now, we weren't really because we were a copy band. So, but we were full of great musicians in the early stages. That first band, the drummer was a great drummer. The guitar player was great. The singer was really good. The bass player was maybe the best musician we ever had in Twisted Sister. And so you could take apart Mott Records and Rolling Stones and play them really well. And we were a copy band. Okay, so we weren't playing originals. So I'd rather play copy than crummy originals. We really have no, no reason to listen to people who can't sing and can't play, play original shit, not interested. Um, so, so we did excel to a point because we, we became very popular. Now, we were the house band at the Mad Hatter in the Hamptons, which was this huge gig. That was the entire summer of 72, uh, 73. And two of the three months in 74, we reigned supreme. And a club owner in the Hamptons decided to bring the New York Dolls out because we had established a beachhead in the Hamptons. So he's going to bring out the band, the Dolls. And, you know, and I went to see the Dolls when they came out. It was horrible because nobody cared. Those kids wanted to hear Smoke on the Water and, you know, and Bowie and Lou Reed and Mott. And they didn't really want to hear Personality Crisis, you know, in a band that could barely play because everybody else were, were players. You know, so that's the difference. And, 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 and so that's, that's what we tried to do. We tried to improve on an, on an existing model. And then look what happened. Over time, you know, the dolls fall apart. They go by the wayside. Twisted just evolves and evolves and evolves and evolves and evolves until we finally play catch up and hit the big time, you know, 12 years later. And by the way, Kiss, to their credit, Kiss came out the exact same time. I have a magazine in 73 with the dolls on the cover and Kiss and Twisted Sister and two black and white shots. Mm -hmm. It all came out at the same time. And Kiss knew exactly what they wanted to do. They had a vision. They had a real vision. You know, you can like them, you can hate them. They had a vision. They pulled it off. They're very successful. Obviously, you don't need me to tell you that. Mega successful. Mega records that were successful. Jim Paul knew exactly what they were shooting for. They were very business oriented. They stayed true, pretty much. Ventured off a little bit in the disco world. Everybody kind of got thrown off yeah. around that period. But, you know, look, look. So look at the bands that came out of 73. ACDC, Judas Priest, Twisted Sister. Um, uh, oh, there's another one. Um, um, us. Well, Alice came, was, was earlier. Um, Van, um, 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 um. Van Halen. Yeah, so look at these. These are all 73. No, Van Halen came back later. But if you look at us and Priest and Kiss and ACDC, yeah, look, look. And here we are 50 years later. Um, if you had asked any of us in 73, how long are you going to last? You know, the answer would have been five years. That was the standard answer. Oh, five years, maybe 10, because the Beatles lasted 10. Uh, but other than that, that was, that was it. So I think it's absolutely insane that we're all here 50 years later, but it's a testament to all of our business acumen, you know, Priest, ACDC, 
you know, um, uh, Kiss and, and us. Uh, when no one expected for this to last like this. What is, as we wrap up here, I'm just curious, um, the last show was in 2016 for Twisted Sister. Yeah. What, what was that like? Just sort of playing that last number, taking your final bow. Like what, 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 what's kind of going on in, in your mind at that time? I was happy to be done with it. My wife, I got very emotional in the dressing room talking to the road crew that, that night. I miss those guys. But in terms of performance, you know, I mean, for me, it goes back to 73. D came in much later. Eddie came in later. Mark came in later. For me, all those thousands of shows eventually take their toll. So I never, I didn't understand many for many years when they would interview a, a retired football player or baseball player. And they'd say, so how's your team doing? And they go, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Don't you watch them? No. You don't go to games? No. I never understood that. I'm saying, what do you mean you don't know? How do you not? How, this is your life. Now I know. Some people just go, been there, done that, done with it. So when Twisted first ended in 88, I would dream about the band getting back together again. There was unfinished business, but there's no unfinished business anymore. We came back incredibly, had another hit record with a Christmas record, come back headlining all these shows around the world, crowning achievement. You know, beautiful. Played South America, played Buenos Aires, the greatest rock and roll city, singularly the greatest rock and roll city in the world. You know, as for 65-year-old guys to have people screaming at you like it's Beatlemania is not to be believed. And, and the crowds in South America in general, it's more of a religious experience. They're so passionate. Not to say that we don't have great fans in Germany and Sweden and Norway. We do. But but my God, South America, Mexico, it's, it's, it's a whole other world down there. And we got to live it, you know, we got to live it. And then, you know, we did crazy stuff. Like we played the Arctic circle on a, on a Friday and we played Oklahoma on a Sunday. And, and that was nine flights and 12 time zones and 3000 miles. And, you know, there's no, the sun doesn't set in, in the Arctic circle. So you're playing to 10,000 of the drunkest people on the planet earth at four o'clock in the morning, the sun's up in the air, and then you stay awake and you fly 24 hours to Oklahoma city and you play a show in Oklahoma city and you fly home and you realize that in one 85 hour period of time, you've been on nine flights, one four hour uh, bus ride to get to the, the tip of the Arctic circle. You've played in 12 different time zones and, and all the baggage and luggage all arrived on time and no flights were missed. You know, those are one of these great, crazy, you know, three-day things. And my wife asked me how I felt when I got home. And I said, you know, considering the jet lag, the time dis, uh, disruptions. And my quote to her was, I used to pay money in high school to get in this condition, but I have no, <laughs> I have no desire to be in this condition anymore. <laughs> We also used to make money getting other people in that condition as well. Yeah, and I was making money getting in that condition this time, but I just, I don't know, I just, you know, at my age, it's, we, our motto is sex prescription drugs and rock and roll. <laughs> we have a whole different, you know, view of it. That's funny. Well, the book is uh, Twisted Business, Lessons from My Life in Rock and Roll. The author is J.J. French. Uh, this is this is a fun conversation. I want to make this uh, this book right here. Um, mandatory reading for my students at uh, Sacred Heart University because uh, it is it is a business book. There's a lot of great business lessons in there from, you know, strategic planning and and business management to, to reinvention and um, you know competitive intelligence. I'd throw in there as well. So um, JJ, thank you uh, so much for the time. Thank you. I really appreciate being on the show. 